What is your biggest fear? What is it that when you think about this, this keeps you up at night? For some, maybe it's your health. For others, maybe it's a relationship, whether it's with your spouse or with your kids. For some, maybe it's a fear that you'll never truly find love. For others, maybe it's just fear in general. There's a quote that I've shared with you before, but it's worth repeating. It's by Francis Chan, and he says this. He says, our greatest fear should not be failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Succeeding at things in life that just don't matter. Who wants to get to the end of their life only to discover that all the trophies, all of the plaques that we've been working for, all of the promotions that we received, that they're nothing more than what the Bible calls wood, hay, and stubble. And that the things that last for eternity, we have been so busy doing temporary things that won't matter for eternity that we simply did not invest our time, our money, or our priorities in things that will truly last forever. How about as a child? What was your greatest fear as a child? Do you remember? I read a magazine article the other day by, um, it was in Parenting Magazine, and it listed a toddler's top 10 fears. And I'm curious, some interaction here. I wanted to see, do you think you could name five of those top 10 fears? I'm going to let you write those down. You've got 30 seconds. I want you to either talk about them to the person next to you, write them down. Can you name five of a toddler's top 10 fears starting now? Go. All right. Let's see how well you did. All right. Here's, here's the, we're going to start with 10 and we'll go, that, go down to one. The 10th biggest fear for a toddler. This is going to hurt some of you in this room. Doctors and dentists. We've got several of those in the church. I apologize. I didn't make this list. That was just number, number 10. Number nine shocked me. Number nine was toilets and bathrooms. <laughs> I don't know why. That's just what it says. Anyone get that right, by the way? Anybody say toilets or bathrooms? Wow, impressive. Several of you did. All right, number eight, costumes and masks. Some of you have those great pictures of your children going to Santa Claus and they're terrified. Those are the best Christmas pictures. Um, my child, my, my second, Anna Reese, she is ter- was terrified of the Chick-fil-A cow. I told Lindsay, she can't be my child. I don't know how that happened. Um, still trying to figure that one out. Number seven, being alone. Six, separation. Five, strangers. Four, bad dreams. Number three was weather, two, monsters. What do you think number one is? Darkness was number one. A fear of being in the dark is a toddler's greatest fear. So what do we do sometimes as parents in our child's room? If they're afraid of the dark, we'll put something in the room to help them. What do we put in there? A nightlight. And what's so fascinating to me is we can have this one small little nightlight and the room is still filled with darkness, but all of a sudden their eyes, their attention is drawn to that one little light and it gives them a sense of of safety. It gives them a sense of, of security right there. Well, this morning, 
in our scripture reading, we're going to see that Jesus is going to make his second of seven I am statements. A few weeks ago, when we were in chapter 6, we saw Jesus refer to his first I am statement, where he said, I am the bread of life. Well, this morning, we're going to be in chapter 8, and he's going to say, I am the light of the world. In the midst of the darkness that we live in today, I think we would all agree that our world is a dark place. We live in a world that is filled with sin, and because of the hope of Jesus, because Jesus is the light of the darkness, because he is the light of the world, even in the midst of the darkness, because we have the light living inside of us, we can still have hope. Amen? In John chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 12, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles. But as I try to every week, I want to try to set the scene and paint the picture before we jump into our text. See, in this moment, Jesus is celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there were two great ceremonies that occurred in that feast. The first we talked about um, a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, and that was the pouring out of water. You remember that the priest would take water and would pour it out on the sacrifice, and that reminded them of while their ancestors wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, that God provided water from where? From the rock. And then once they entered the promised land, they no longer had to have water from there because they had water from the rivers. Well, the second great ceremony that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles was known as the illumination of the temple. Now, this took place in what is known as the treasury. This was one of the busiest places um, in the temple, and it was also referred to as the court of women. Now, they called it the court of women, no surprise here, because this was as far as women during that time were allowed to go into the temple. So in the treasury, in the court of women, there were 13 different treasure boxes, Each of these boxes were were, were shaped like trumpets, so they called them the trumpet boxes there. The trumpets or the boxes, they were each marked so that you would know that when you're going to give your money in one of those boxes, what that money was designated for that would be used um, for the temple. Now, what's interesting, a quick aside here, in the treasury, this is where in a few weeks that Jesus actually witnessed the widow giving her offering. Remember the story of the widow's might that she gave all that she had. And I love that this is where Jesus decides that he's going to teach. Not in a room just filled with men. Not in a room where the religious leaders would be. Not in a room just where the rich and powerful will be, but he decides this is the place that he is going to continue to reveal his identity and his purpose so that everyone would have the ability and the opportunity to hear from him. So here in the center of this treasury, there were four great candelabrums that were set up. Now, these torches were probably as high as the highest walls in the temple. There's a picture that I'm going to put on the screen here that I want you to see. And there was a ladder for each of the candelabrums. And in the evening, the priest would carry the, temp- the, the, the oil up of the ladder. And then they, with a torch, they would light the candlesticks there. The great flames, because they were so high, it illuminated the whole temple. Hence the name, the illumination of the temple. 
But it did even more than just light up the temple. Because they were so high, it lit up, in fact, much of Jerusalem, that they could see this light that was coming from the temple. Now, the people of Jerusalem, they would dance until dawn. They clearly weren't Baptists, right? Because they were dancing. It was, it was an exotic festival that they had there, and it was celebrating how the pillar of fire, it led their ancestors out of Egypt, out of the wilderness into the promised land. And so this was a remembrance of that time during um, the leadership of Moses. So I hope that now you've got your picture in your mind of this is what is going on, and it's at this moment, it's during this ceremony against this backdrop that Jesus makes what to them was an absolutely stunning announcement. Chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, there could not have been a more dramatic way or timing for Jesus to make this announcement against this backdrop of when the temple was about to be illuminated, when the whole city of Jerusalem was about to be lit. Jesus says, it's not just that. I am the light of the world. Just as Israel had followed that pillar of light out of the darkness, out of the wilderness, into the promised land, now Jesus is calling on his people to come now and follow me. I am the way out of the wilderness. I am the way out of the darkness. Come and follow me. Throughout Scripture, light has always declared God's glory. From the very first day of creation, what did God say? Let there be what? Light. Until the very end of the Bible in Revelation, where we see that um, the picture of the new Jerusalem, where God's presence is going to be replacing the what? The sun. Light always displays God's holiness. Light always displays God's truth, his splendor. So the claim that Jesus is making here at the moment is he's saying that he himself, he is the one who actually led their ancestors out of the wilderness by that pillar of fire. That Jesus himself, he was the one who surrounded, who enveloped the temple. That he was the Shekinah glory, which is a big fancy word that simply means the visible manifestation of God on earth. And by claiming that Jesus is the light of the world, what he is saying is that it's only by me that you can see and understand everything else. It's only by accepting me, it's only by trusting in me that you can see and understand this world. You see, it's through Jesus that we embrace the reality of this broken world because of sin. We all admit the world is broken, don't we? But it's through Jesus that not only do we admit this reality that the world is broken because sin has entered into the world, but as believers, as followers of Jesus, we have hope. Why do we have hope? Because Jesus has promised that one day he will fix it. Jesus has already defeated death. He did that on the cross. So we have confidence that one day he will banish death forever. We can take hope in that. We can take confidence in that. That we know that the ultimate victory is one day coming. No matter how dark the world may be, no matter how sinful the world may get, we know the end of the story. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 
And it's only by following him that we can truly see. So that's who Jesus is claiming to be in verse 12. That's the first part. But then he continues and he makes another dramatic claim. But the next claim he makes is not really about himself, but instead this claim is for all of those, including many of us, who have chosen to follow him. Look at the last part of verse 12. It says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus' statement. Not only does he say that he is the light of the world, that through trusting in him that we'll be able to to make our way to walk through this darkness just as the children of Israel did because of that pillar of light, but he goes even further and he says also that those who trust in him for salvation, they actually will become beams or rays of the Lord's light. Think about that. Not only does God say that I'm the light of the world, but if you follow me, then you will be my hands and feet and you will actually display the Lord's light throughout the world wherever you go. This theme of of us being light, it's all throughout the New Testament. Three examples. Ephesians 5, 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are what? Light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We share the very light that Jesus displayed. Jesus said that we are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Paul told Christians in Philippi when they were walking through difficult and dark days, listen to what he said. He said that you are to shine as lights in the world. You see, because we trust in the light of the world, one of the incredible benefits is that we actually contain the light of Christ inside of us. And God not only says, just as he said to the woman last week caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but it gets even better than that. Not only does he not say, I don't condemn you, but he says, I want to use you. I want you to be my hands. I want you to be my feet. I want you to be the display of my love. I want when people see you that they actually see a reflection of me. Let that soak in for a minute. There was a time when Moses desperately wanted to see the Lord's face. Remember the story in Exodus? And he asked the Lord, he said, God, can I, can I just see your face? At all? If I just see your face, everything will be okay. God said, you can't see my face. Because if you see my face, you will surely what? Die. So he hides Moses in what's called the cleft of a rock. And he covers Moses' face with his hand. And he walks by Moses. And after he's passed Moses, he removes his hand so that Moses sees his back. And what happens to Moses as a result of seeing just the back of of God? Do you remember? His face began to what? Glow. His face was glowing so brightly just from seeing the back of the Lord that he had to put a veil over his face when he was talking about the Lord to other people. Paul mentions this in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, And we all, with unveiled faces, referring back to Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friends, listen to me. We have been in the presence of Jesus. When we recognize what we have been saved from, when we recognize what he has rescued us from, when we understand that at one point we were enemies of God, but by the grace of God, now he has made us friends of his. He has made us joint heirs with Christ. 
When we recognize that all of our sins were put on the shoulders of Jesus, that all of our condemnation, all of our guilt, all of our shame, it was placed upon Jesus. When we realize that, and then it goes even further, not only did he pay for our sins, but now he's saying, I want to use you. I want you to be part of the story. I'm inviting you in. I want you to be my hands and my feet, and I want you to take this message of salvation and go share it with the world. Church, and we understand that. Our response better be more than simply, thanks, Jesus. Sure appreciate that. Here's the leftovers of my life. Jesus, I'll give you second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth place of my life. Jesus, thanks for salvation. Thanks for forgiving me my sins. Thanks for allowing me to be part of your plan. By the way, I'll fit you in whenever you're convenient. I'll make you the Lord of my life. I'll make you the most important thing as long as it fits in my schedule. No. As God's children, as children of light, as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we reflect on Jesus, we should be transforming daily into the presence and the image of Jesus Christ. We should reflect Jesus more and more each and every day. There's a way that you can tell if Jesus has transformed your life. Let me give you three simple ways you can tell if Jesus has truly transformed your life. Number one, look at your daily or weekly routine. What role does reading God's word play in your life? What role does prayer play in your life? On a daily basis, on a weekly basis, how often are you talking to and about Jesus? Number two, when you leave here today, go home and look at your online bank statement. How much have you invested in God's eternal kingdom versus temporary things? Number three, look at your kids, look at your family. Look at your coworkers. When's the last time you talked with them about Jesus? When's the last time you said, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life? When's the last time you asked someone that you see on a daily, weekly basis, how can I pray for you? Friends, does your life look different from your family and your friends who are not following Jesus? Are your priorities different from those who don't have the light of the world living inside of them? Are your personal desires and the desires for your family, are they different from those who aren't following and who don't have a desire to follow Jesus? Because if not, you need to ask yourself, has the light of the, has the, light of the world come into my life? Has he shown a bright light in my life? Has he exposed the dark places of my life, life areas of my life where sin has been hiding, where pride has taken root? And maybe, maybe you've convinced yourself that your efforts, that your words, that your deeds are enough, that you can just twist Jesus' arm to convince him to allow you into heaven. Church, before we respond to God's word by observing the Lord's Supper, I want us to also look and see what Jesus says to those who reject his claims. Let's keep reading in verses 13 through 20. So the Pharisee said to him, 
You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father, meaning God, who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? because his hour had not yet come. So the Pharisees, they once again rejected Jesus. They understood this claim that he was making. They understood that he was saying that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the promised Savior of the world that they had been longing for. But they hang their disbelief on what? A technicality. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this, but what they, what they were talking about was the fact that there was a law of Moses which required that there had to at least be two witnesses um, in order for any testimony to be valid. It comes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Jesus responded by saying that his identity as the Son of God, that it placed him above any need for a second witness. Understand the implications of that. Jesus says, because of my identity, because I'm the Son of God, because I come from heaven, not from earth, we're going to look at that next week, I don't have to have a second witness. My authority on its own is enough. Listen, what that means is that we need to remember that Jesus' divine wisdom is infinitely and eternally deeper than that of the most intellectual and insightful human being. In this case, he's referring back to the Pharisees. But church, there's an application for us today. And that is that we need to remember this when we are tempted to reshape Jesus or his words or his commands in order to fit into our own image. It's tempting today in 2019 to want to, um, to, to, to change or shift or adjust or adapt what God calls sin in order to fit into the narrative that we now live in today. But friends, may we be more concerned as people of God of falling on the right side of God's word than we are about falling on the right side of conventional wisdom of people who don't have the light of the world living inside of them, nor do they care to promote the word of God. By the way, there was a second witness. Who was it? It was God. God the Father was a witness to Jesus' words and works there. Jesus claims that the father was his witness. So it caused them to question. They said, okay, well, Jesus, where is your father? Now understand, they meant this as an insult to Jesus. They were once again trying to push the envelope. They were trying to push him to force him to prove his identity. And listen to how bluntly Jesus responds. See, some people have this image of Jesus. 
He was always meek and mild and patient. He never raised his voice. He never got angry. I don't know what Bible you're reading if that's the Jesus that you always think of. Because listen to how he responds when they say, where's your father? And he says, you don't know me or my father. Pretty blunt, isn't it? As we've noted time and time again throughout our study of the book of John, the people who should have known, the people who, were prophe- who should have understood the prophecy that read the scripture, this was their job to know the Old Testament. They should have known the prophecies that this was the Messiah. These are the very ones who, when he was standing there in their presence, they completely missed him. They claimed to serve God, but they didn't know him. Why? Because they refused to worship his son. See, many in that crowd, all of the Pharisees, they heard Jesus. And listen, they didn't misunderstand. They didn't deny Jesus because they misunderstood him. No, they clearly understood these claims that Jesus were making. But the reason they denied him is because his claims We're too radical. This is just too much. We can't take it. Jesus was saying that anyone who truly worshiped God would also honor and follow him. The key word here is Jesus' claims were radical. I'm afraid today sometimes we try to water down what Jesus calls us as followers of him. Yes, the message of Jesus is simple. It is so simple that even a child, a second grader that I talked to before the service started, can understand and can grasp, and I believe can trust Jesus with their life. But what Jesus demands is more than simply adding him to your current lifestyle. No, he demands that he become your Lord, your Savior, and your Master. Listen to how strongly he put it in Luke. Jesus said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Church, for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, who have committed our lives, who have repented from our sins and said, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. We need to put to death our plans and our desires and instead we need to turn our lives over to Jesus daily and ask him to do his will in and through our lives, even if it doesn't fit our master plan, even if it doesn't fit what we have on our our schedule for that day. But every day we would take up our cross. We would deny our plans, our desires, say, God, I've got everything planned, but I'm coming before you with open hands saying, Lord, this is not my life, but it's yours. And I am giving myself to you today. Show me what do you want to do with me today? Because I am yours and I will follow you. I will do whatever you're calling me to do today. My fear is that we've made following Jesus so simple that we simply add him to what we're doing and then think everything that we can continue in our same lifestyle. That's not what Jesus has called us to do. He is the light of the world who shines his light in our darkness and he should revolutionize every aspect, every area of our lives today. So at this time, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, 
Those that are on the front row, I'm so glad that you're here. It's glad to have friends on the front row. Our deacons are going to come forward. Unless you would like to serve the Lord's Supper, Carol, we can have women right here, okay? Um, <laughs> um, if you want to, there's plenty of seats right here. Um, you can do that. Our deacons are going to come, and we're going to transition to a time that we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that you truly are the light of the world. That you shine your light into the dark places of our life. And not only do you expose our sin, but you take our sin. You remove our sin so that we might be free of condemnation, free of guilt. And that is what we celebrate today. So Lord, thank you. And I pray that if there is anyone here today that has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that today they would repent of their sin. They'd call out to you and ask you to be their Lord and their Savior. And they would find a Savior welcoming them in to your family. For Jesus, we worship you and we thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.